Jesus Christ and that's what we're going to be doing over the next eight weeks we've got an overview of the words and works of Jesus Christ the Messiah entitled Jesus the conquering lion and I hope that we can get a fresh glimpse of Jesus maybe you'll find it's the Jesus that you never knew and he will empower you you know to face and embrace everything that he's got for you this year let's uh, before we look this morning at the king and his commission, the king and his commission, I wonder if you could pray with me, please. Father of delights, because at your right hand there are pleasures of every, for, forevermore and for everyone, we come before your throne of grace asking you to help us to sharpen our swords of truth, anoint our shields of faith, and to refit the helmet of our salvation. May your holy word become for us then the pleasure ground of our mind, the comfort of our soul, the healer of our body, and the quickener of our spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Christmas is, is now over. and We've just celebrated once again the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ who the scriptures refer to in Revelation 13, verse 18, as this. Verse 8, rather, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. The lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Now, do you know, guys, the summary of the Christmas angel, Gabriel's annunciation speech to the Virgin Mary, declares to us the whole counsel of the mind of the Father, the whole purpose of the naming of the Messiah as he becomes the central theme of the eternal plan of the triune God. What a statement, eh? Well, I think it's a great statement anyway. Listen to it. Matthew 1 verse 21. And you shall bring forth a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know, it's been approximately 30 years now in our minds since that uh, announcement from the angel Gabriel about the purpose of the Messiah. He's been growing up in Galilee and Nazarene obscurity, and we find him only in those 30 years, only in his father's house on two occasions. First, after 40 days of, uh, of life when he was presented uh, at, the, uh, at the temple in the dedication, witnessed to by the, the prophet Simeon and the prophetess Anna. And secondly, when Jesus was around 12 years of age, when he went up with his family for the Passover. 
and they lost him. How can you lose somebody? Lost him for three days and found him in the temple discussing and talking with the teachers of the law about the word of God. Only two times in those 30 years do we find Jesus in his father's house. Since that time, you know what he's been doing? He's been concentrating on carpentry, prayer, meditation, preparation, waiting, waiting, waiting. And I want to suggest to you he's been waiting for a leaping baby to begin his heraldic ministry. You'll remember when Mary was pregnant with Jesus, she approached her much older but very pregnant cousin Elizabeth, and it was John, John the baptizer, who was on, in Elizabeth's womb, that leapt in the womb at the very presence of Jesus in the womb of Mary. Leapt at the very presence of Jesus. Even in the womb, you see, spirit to spirit, deep calls to deep. There was a knowing in the spiritual realm there. John knew his Savior even in the womb. And even before his birth, John the baptizer strained at the leash to be released to fulfill his ministry in declaring the coming of the Messiah, the revealing of the Messiah to Israel. And that's why we read in John 1 verse 29, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I didn't know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. So I came baptizing with water. You see, his cousin, as it were, second cousin John the, Bapt John the baptizer was kept in equal obscurity. John the Baptist was kept in the backside of the desert. I think it's a reasonable assumption that though their family should have kept them together, their individual training kept them separate. John and Jesus never met in those 30 years, I want to suggest to you. John the Nazarene, that's who he was, was brought up on a diet of quiet and the word of God. John the Baptist discovered his commission to be the heraldic voice in the wilderness and he was going to be the nation of Israel's town crier, as it were, a national crier, a pathfinder, not a repairer of paths, but a preparer of ways. That's why John the Baptist could say this, I indeed baptize you with water to repentance, but he is coming after me, is mightier than me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We find that John the Baptist, according to the Scriptures, was full of the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Gabriel says of John the Baptist, listen to this, many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord their God. What a preacher. And from the desert, after 400 years of silence, there came this man wearing a, a camel's garment and a leather belt 
eating locusts and wild honey, long hair, a wild man of the desert, declaring the purposes of God, booming out a message of judgment and hope. You see, John the Baptist was the preparatory and prophetic wind and fire that broke in pieces the rocks he prophesied to, that Jesus would come with redemptive life and cleansing judgment fire. And let me tell you that when John walked out of the desert wilderness in the spirit and power of Elijah, make no bones about it, there was revival in Israel. He was a revival preacher. And you know what? He was a preacher of hope and hellfire. And revival came to Israel. He changed the nation. I can't emphasize this to you enough. John the Baptist brought revival to Israel. He physically changed the face of the nation. And his ministry was one of confession and repentance. He was calling people to confess their sins and to change their lives because someone is coming who's going to make every valley high and every hill low and straighten every crooked place. So John the Baptist's ministry was one of repentance and preparation. And do you know all of this ministry was marked out by the sign of water. Water, baptism, full immersion became a sign of confession and repentance with a view to the forgiveness of sins. With a view to the forgiveness of sins. Now, John the Baptist's baptism differs from Christian baptism in one distinct and unique way. Christian baptism is a sign of confession and repentance from the viewpoint of receive forgiveness of sins and of a new life received. So John the Baptist says, repent and believe with a view to receiving the forgiveness of your sins. We as Christians are baptized as a sign that we have received forgiveness of our sins and new life. Do you see that? There's a distinct time perspective in the difference in those two baptisms. John the Baptist was a baptism with a view to the forgiveness of sins. His ministry was one of prophetic preparation. This was his message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what John said. His ministry was in preparation for the Messiah. The kingdom of heaven is near, he says. The rule of God is even at your elbow. You better get ready for it. And baptism was an outward sign of repentance and belief in the coming of the Messiah. And following This water baptism of John, this simple administration of a sign, there had to come the shaping of a person's life. Their ways had to be changed. You see, this repentance that we're talking about, that John was preaching about, had to be seen in a reshaped life. The self-righteous, and the religious self-righteous in particular, wanted little to do with such confession and repentance. They didn't think they needed it. But the people literally flocked to hear John the Baptist. (laughs) We read this, that the whole of Jerusalem went out to him. Imagine the whole of London going out to hear Billy Graham. The whole of Jerusalem went out 
to hear John the Baptist. He was, he was preaching in the Jordan River in the south there, amongst all those bobbing bodies being immersed in the water. And all of this happened. All of these people were coming down to hear about him. The whole of the south there, that even without God TV, Galilee in the north heard about John the Baptist. They'd heard of the commotion he was calling. And this commotion brought on the great commissioning of the King of Kings. Because we read this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 the king came down. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by the him. I wonder if the Lord Jesus one day, having maybe sat on a chair that he'd just completed, he just sanded it all down, he was sat on it every way to see if it would hold his weight. I wonder if one day after he'd just completed finishing a chair in his carpenter's shop, that he stood upright at the sound of this news blowing in from south of the country from Judea about John, this heraldic voice. And all that was encapsulated in his message of prophetic preparation for the coming of the Messiah. I wonder if it landed on the heart of Jesus in his carpenter's shop. And I wonder if another voice spoke to him then and said this. Now's the time, my son. Now. On hearing this, I wonder if Jesus gently took off his carpenter's apron, laid down the tools of his present occupation, locked up his shop, kissed his mom au revoir, walked out one summer's day and moseyed on down south to fulfill his eternal purpose. As far as Jesus and his ministry was concerned, now the way had been prepared. Jesus found John the Baptist at the Jordan River. It was easy you just followed the crowds. Jesus, I wonder, stood in line with the rest of them, no doubt waiting along with them all to wade into the water to be baptized by John. Listening to the ever-present proclamation of that same prophet in between all the kaplunking of the people as they were immersed in the Jordan River. Every time John baptized somebody, you'd hear him say these words, you know, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he was encouraging people to prepare to receive the Messiah. What must we do then, John, says the soldiers, the mercenary soldiers there. And in between baptizing, John would lift one out of the water and say, you lot, what you need to do is just accept your wages and stop extorting people. Stop beating them up. Just accept your wages and be good soldiers. What shall we do, says the religious people on the banks of the Jordan River? You should do good, says John. Let all your true religion be seen in doing good. If you've got two coats, give one away. If you've got more than enough food, share your food. What shall we do, says the tax collectors to John the Baptist, in between all of this kaplunking? Don't take more than the Roman authorities say that you should do. Don't line your own pocket, says John. Get ready for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And in between all the baptizing and all the preaching, after standing in line, Jesus' turn comes and he wades in the water. Do you get the picture? And as he moves towards John the baptizer, after 30 years, his spirit leaps once more. And there before him is his Savior. He'd been preparing the way for Jesus. He'd been preaching about him in expectation. But he never expected to find him in the water with him. That was a surprise for John the Baptist to look up one summer's day and see the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world standing before him, waist deep in water. And the herald was humbled before his king and finally released of his own commission to become now part of the Father's commission of the ministry of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because what is about to happen now, dear friends, is special. It wasn't the same baptism that everyone else was received in because Jesus was sinless. He was the Holy Lamb of God. He knew no sin, spoke no sin, did no sin. There was no need for repentance. It wasn't that kind of a baptism. He had no need of that sign. But the use of water was the same. He was going to be immersed. But the significance of Christ's baptism at the hands of John was totally different. John knew he didn't need his baptism of repentance and preparation. And so we read this in verse 14. John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. And that word there, that Greek word John tried to prevent him, is full of power. It's like putting your hands in someone's chest and saying to them, no, you can't go forward. It's with great earnestness opposing a movement. John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. We see the second thing of six things this morning. The second thing is that the king does everything right. Look at verse 15. Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Christ's baptism was not, in his case, a symbol of personal reformation and repentance because he was sinless. It was a, a solemn rite whereby he was now going to be set aside commissioned for his office as prophet, priest, and king, as the Messiah. He was going to set a symbol of holiness and purity by doing the right thing, though, for the church that would come after him. Even in his commission, Jesus wanted to associate himself with everything that was right. Didn't he get presented in the, in the temple? I told you, after 40 days, to be redeemed by two turtle doves, the poorest offering that could be offered. Every firstborn male, it says in the Bible in the Old Testament, belongs to me, says God. And so every Jewish family would have to redeem, buy back the firstborn male, offer sacrifice. So after 40 days, the brand new male baby would be taken to the temple and a sacrifice would be offered to buy that firstborn male back from God, as it were. Because every firstborn male is mine, says the Lord. 
So Jesus, even as the Messiah, even as the Son of God, did everything right. And on that 40th day, he was bought back. His mum and dad hadn't uh, cashed in the gold, frankincense, and myrrh yet. Uh, www.goldforcash.com didn't exist. So they had yet to go down the poor brokers or or able to sell that. They were going to sell it soon enough for sure. They'd need it for their journey down to Egypt and back. But Jesus associated himself with all righteousness. He got circumcised as well as a sign. He went to the synagogue school and was taught. He was obedient to his parents. He even learnt a trade, the trade of his father, possibly. His earthly father, Joseph, a carpenter. And by performing all of these duties there, he encourages us to do all things that's right. All righteousness must be fulfilled, says Jesus. Let's do what's right. There's no anarchy in the church of God. There's no anarchy in the kingdom of the Father. It's good to do your duty. It's good to do what's right. This is what Jesus says here. Let us fulfill all righteousness. You're going to have to baptize me. But number three, we see something very interesting happening here. Number three, the king is commissioned by the Father. So in verse 16, we read this. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Look at this trinity of the Godhead here. You've got the person of Jesus Christ in the water. You've got the person of the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. You've got the person of the Father speaking in a voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son. The whole of the Godhead is involved in the commissioning of Jesus Christ to his work and his ministry. And it's almost like the Father is like a divine master of ceremonies, anointing and announcing the pleasing presence of his Son to the world. I love seeing those films and you've got the Master of Ceremonies there and people coming, Lord and Lady Salisbury. It's as though the Father, when the Son was baptized and he came out of the water, said, this is my beloved Son. He put his divine stamp on everything that was being done. And Jesus is now anointed by the Holy Spirit to fulfill every role of his office as prophet, priest, and king. John the Baptist has now completed his mission as Christ the King now receives his commission. Let me tell you a story here because you need to see this. This will change your life. I really believe this. If you can get what I'm about to say in the next five or ten minutes, it will change your life. It'll change your prayer life. It'll change the way you look at things. It'll change the way you act. It'll get you to lift your head up and put your shoulders back and take a deep breath and put a smile on your face. It'll stop you from dragging your knuckles on the ground like Neanderthal man and get you to stand upright like a child of God. So listen up. 
If you can get this, it will change you. Because the fourth thing I need to tell you this morning is, the king then wins his golden spurs. The king then wins his golden spurs. When I was called into ministry, and I was called into ministry 30 years ago nearly, 29, 30 years ago, there was a commissioning of words. It was around a kitchen table. Six, seven o'clock one evening, pastor and his wife and me and God the Holy Spirit speaking through them. And I've hung on to these words of commission for nearly 30 years. I'll tell you them sometime. But with those words of commission came something else. Robert, you're going to be tested on this. I don't know when, but you will be. I know, friends, the testing came once in particular and a thousand times before and ten thousand times after. You see, a commission means a committal to battle. A commission means a commission to battle. It was the agnostic Joyce Ann Struther writing under the pen name Jan Struther who wrote a couple of very famous hymns. She was commissioned by a bishop in the uh, uh, Church of England as an agnostic to write some children's hymns. They're great hymns. Lord of all hopefulness is one of them. Another one is one that you may have sung in school, some of you older ones. When a knight won his spurs in the stories of old, he was gentle and brave, he was gallant and bold, with a shield on his arm and a lance in his hand, for God and for valor he rode through the land. I didn't know you knew that. That's amazing. You see, to be a knight, you had to win your golden spurs in some heroic conflict. In our history, it was Edward III who instigated a new order of chivalry in this country, the remnants of which we've even got today. It was Edward III at a court dance who had the... uh, unfortunate occurrence to see a garter fall from the leg of Lady Salisbury. The king stooped down to pick this garter up and people laughed at this very embarrassing thing that had happened in the king's court and it annoyed Edward III very much indeed and he turned around and he said, uh, because we were still fighting in France at that time for the throne, on his soit Evil be to him who thinks evil. Aniswaki Malipans. That's what he said. And then he said this, some of you will see this garter set so high. He was annoyed. Some of you are going to see this garter set so high, he says, that you'll think it an honor to wear it. And so Edward III founded this new order of knighthood, calling it the Order of the Garter. Now, the kings of England at that time were still fighting, like I say, for control of France. And it was Edward III who was battling in France at that time uh, with only 20,000 men remaining. And he'd heard that King Philip of France was now close behind him with 120,000 men. And it was on Saturday, 26th of August, 1346, that Edward came to rest at a French town called Cressy 
and he got up very early in the morning and he divided his army into three parts. And the king himself went into a nearby windmill and he didn't come out the rest of the day. In the morning he got on a donkey and in front of his 20,000 men he made them sit down on the ground and get breakfast. He said, how are you doing? A little white wand as it were, smiling. He said, everything's going to be all right, chaps. We're going to win today. Don't worry that we're outnumbered six to one. It's okay. We're going to win. Just stand your ground, have your breakfast, and just rest a while until the enemy comes into view. I'll be in that windmill over there. And my 17-year-old son, he's going to be in charge of the vanguard. Edward III goes in the windmill, and 120,000 French soldiers, knights, mercenaries, Italian bowmen, all come to find these 20,000 British soldiers sat on the ground. King Philip wants his army to rest before fighting on the morrow, but he can't get the word out to all of the troops and the people of France at the back there. And like just an irresistible swarm, the back of the French army pushes everybody forward. And so King Philip has got no option but to attack the British. It's, everything's in disarray. It's either attack or we're in a mess. And so he sends in the Italian bowmen first of all. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, the British stand up and they've got the secret weapon that, uh, you know, before the onset of gunpowder would have conquered the whole of Europe. And that, of course, was the British longbow. And with their longbow, they absolutely slaughtered the Italian bowmen. And they started to run. The King of, Philip, the King of France uh, wasn't very happy with that, so he ordered his own men to slaughter the Italian mercenaries. And while the French were killing the Italians, God bless them, the English were still firing and raining arrows down on all of them. It was an awful battle. It was a terrible battle. And his son, Edward the Black Prince, just 17, he was called the Black Prince because his suit of armor was black. That's why he was called the Black Prince. He was put in charge of one third of the army. He was up front there. And like I say, it was just slaughter with these bowmen do you know during the battle there was thunderstorms and lightning there was masses of black crows there was an eclipse of the sun during the battle of Cressy it was a terrible time and for the first time cannon was used on the battlefield by the British didn't do much damage but it scared them that's for sure during the course of the battle Certain knights came to Edward III, locked up in his windmill, and they came with this message. Sire, they said, we entreat you to send help to the prince, your son. Is my son dead? said the king. No, no, sire, thank God, he's not dead. Is my son wounded? said the king. No, sire, he's not dead, he's not wounded, but he's in danger, and the French are fierce about him, and he's in need of help. Then, sir, replied the king, if my son is neither dead nor wounded, go back to those who sent you, and tell them not to send again to me this day. Tell them, if they do, I shall neither come nor send help, so long as my son is living. Tell them that I command them to let the boy win his spurs." For I wish the glory of the day to be his. God will guard him. 
He was a tough old boy, Edward III, wasn't he? During the battle, the French had the king of Bohemia, the German king, on their side. He was blind, and he'd heard that the battle was not going well. And he said to some of his knights, come on, let's strike a bow, let's strike a blow uh, against the English. And so what two of his knights did, either side, they strapped their horses to the blind king of Bohemia, and they held him in the middle, and the three of them rode into the fray of the British bowmen and the axemen and everything, and all three were found dead, still tied together at the end of it. In those days, if you were the conqueror, you could take the actual designs, as it were, of the people that you've conquered. As you know, if you were a knight and you rode into battle on your shield, you would have a crest and a motto. A crest and a motto. And the king of Bohemia had the crest of three feathers and the words, Ich dien, which is German and means, I serve. And the arms of the fallen belong to the conqueror. So after the battle, the black prince won his spurs. He was made a knight and he took the motto and the crest of the king of Bohemia for his own and it's been born ever since by the eldest son of a uh, monarch in England, the Prince of Wales. That's why the Prince of Wales has got three feathers and a German motto that says Ich dien because Edward, the black prince, took those coats of arms and motto from the conquered king of Bohemia at the Battle of Cressy. The king, Edward III, came down after the battle, embraced his son and said, Dear son, God give you strength to go on as you've begun. Bravely and nobly have you fought and you're worthy to be king. The honor of the day is yours. And Edward, the black prince, was one of the first knights of the Order of the Garter. But he had to win his spurs. And his father let him fight that day with the possibility of him losing his life, his own son. For him to be a conquering king, he had to get his spurs on the field of battle. Look now for the prince of life is about to win his spurs. Look at 4 verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now you've got to see this. The first act of the commissioned king here, the first act of the prince of life, is to go and find the devil and give him a good thrashing. The first act of Jesus is combat with the devil. I want you to see this for what it is. Jesus is going looking for a fight. There's nothing else here. Don't misunderstand it. There's no passiveness on the part of Jesus here. There's no passiveness. You've never seen this before, have you? There's no passiveness on the part of the Father of the Holy Spirit. He's going to win his spurs. Straight away, he's in the vanguard, and he's going to find the devil. 
He was in that other Michael Caine film based on Rudyard Kipling's book, The Man Who Would Be King, where that other old hymn is immortalized. The Son of God goes forth to war a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar who follows in his train, who best can drink his cup of woe, triumphant over pain, who patient bears his cross below. He follows in his train. You see, the devil came first, do you remember? And he challenged the first man, Adam, in a beautiful paradise garden. The devil came and tempted and tested Adam in the Garden of Eden. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, that's what he's called, the last Adam, that to the fight and to the rescue came, he went out into the desert and challenged the devil. He went looking for him, and the devil tried to avoid him for 40 days and 40 nights. He got him on the run for 40 days and 40 nights until he had to face him. Otherwise, give up the field and acknowledge all was lost. Jesus went looking for the devil. The devil came and ruined the first Adam. And the last Adam went and spoiled and ruined the devil. The first Adam involved the whole human race in his defeat. And the last Adam, Jesus, now is going to give opportunity to the whole human race to gain in his victory over the devil. This is not the old Adam who's passive, waiting to be tempted in the Garden of Eden. This is Jesus going after the devil in the desert to rob him and to ruin him once and for all. Jesus was going to show the devil that he had the right, the divine right, the wherewithal and the commission to stand as the Son of Man, as the Son of God. And I want to tell you this. Here, Jesus is the aggressor. He was going to smoke the devil out, even though it took him 40 days and nights to do so. Friends, this is the commission of his church. We don't wait for the devil to come to us. It was only before the Holy Spirit that the church was locked up in a room trembling. After the coming of the Holy Spirit and the commissioning of Christ along with it, the church was out there. Oh, they may have been getting eaten by lions, having everything robbed from them, having their kids taken away even. Martyred they were, that's for sure. But the church was out there storming the gates of hell. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 16 verse 18, I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We don't wait for the gates of hell to come and close us in. We go and storm the gates of hell. It's us following our Lord Jesus Christ that have the commission, the power, the command, and the authority to go in and take the land. Yes. What are you waiting to get beaten up for? What are you waiting all frightened and depressed about the future for? Dear friends, for goodness sake, we've got this wrong. Our Jesus went looking for the devil. We need to take the ground that he's given to us. It's very important. I'm not a macho man here. I'm really not. But the scriptures are clear. We follow the master and his commission is to go into enemy territory and pull down his strongholds, spoil him, rob him, push him back. That's our job, that's our command, that's our commission. That's what we're doing. The first Adam 
like I say, was tempted in the paradise garden, surrounded by beauty and plenty. The last Adam was tempted in the howling wilderness, surrounded by want and wild beasts. It's commonly thought, you know, that this was an area maybe six to eight miles from the baptism of Jesus around uh, a mountain called Quarantinia, or Quarantinia, just off the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. That road that was so abused by robbers and thugs and muggers that it became known as the ascent of blood. And so we read this in verse 2. When he'd fasted 40 days and 40 nights, you know, Moses and Elijah did the same. Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights before he received the law. Elijah fasted 40 days and 40 nights before that still small voice came to him. In other words, a representation of the law and the prophets fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And him who is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, Jesus Christ, did the same, trying to smoke out the devil. And afterwards, it says, he was hungry. Look at verse 3. And when the tempter came to him, he said, when the tempter came to him, couldn't avoid him anymore. The devil came to him. He smoked him out. The tester. That word, tempter, tester, is very emphatic. It means to pierce through. The tester, the piercer through. That's why it says to us, doesn't it, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, take the shield of faith by which you are able to quench all the fiery darts, the spears, those things that pierce you through you through of the wicked one. It's like, I don't know about you, but I love cheese. The thing about Christmas I like more than anything is all the cheese you get. And you get those wheels of cheese, those rounds of cheese, and when they want to test them, you've seen them, they've got this strange implement whereby they're able to bore right into the center of that wheel of cheese and pull it out and test deep inside the cheese what it's made of. This is a name for the devil here, the tempter, the tester, the piercer. He's going to get right to the point here. Bore right to the heart. Find out what's going on here. If you're the son of God, he says, command that these stones become bread. But it was the father that had brought him there. Jesus had the power. He had the scriptural right to turn these stones into bread. Weren't the Israelites provided with bread in the wilderness? Yes, they were. Isn't it all right for Jesus to provide himself with bread? Yes, it is, apart from this. He's the perfect son, and the perfect son could not act as if he didn't have a loving father. God is going to provide for me. So he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Look, this is my sword. This is my Bible. There's no other Bible like it because it's mine. I know how to use this. What about you? You have got no chance against the devil whatsoever. If you are going to go into battle without an understanding and knowledge of the Word of God, I can tell you the outcome now. You're going to get slaughtered. You're going to get your backside kicked. Jesus Christ sets us this example again and again, dear friends. And I've been telling you for the 18 months that I've been here. Eat this book. Get it in you. Memorize it. Read it. 
Read about it. Listen to sermons about it. Get it in there. Our Christ, our commander is going to show us right now the way to deal with the testing of the devil is this. It is written. Can I beat it one more time? It is written. Nothing else matters. You know, feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. Our warrant is the word of God. Naught else is worth believing. That's what Martin Luther said. And he was right. It's good to feel good about yourself. Amen. May you have that this year. It's good to feel good about the church. Hallelujah. I want that this year. It's good to feel good about the Lord in worship. Amen. Let it be so. But feelings come and go. One bad word from one of you can ruin my day. That's why I don't like to speak to you before I preach. I'll speak to you after. It's the truth. One email late at night, one telephone call, and my world can fall apart. Well, it used to be like that, not nowadays. All comes and goes. There's one thing that stands sure forever. May I? without any disrespect there's nothing else worth standing on nothing you must know this book because you cannot know the God of this book unless you know this book it is written says Jesus I need to emphasize that dear friends at the beginning of this year more than anything else you need to eat this book because if we are to be more than conquerors, we need to know it, stand on it, fight with it. That's what Jesus did. And for the second time then, the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he'll give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Look at that, isn't that absolutely marvelous if you were to come in here on a Tuesday you'd see little pickles like this oh, oh look at you you're my, you're my sermon example please behave yourself for a second <laughs> isn't he wonderful come on he's gorgeous but you see all of mums and carers here on a Tuesday and they've all got their wee ones and some of them are just beginning to walk and all these mums and carers, they've got eyes like eagles, you know. And this place is, is packed. There's toys, there's everything all over the place. It's like a minefield. And some of the wee ones there, they, they start to get real feisty and they like to start walking like this, one foot in front of the other. <laughs> and they'll start going a little bit by themselves and their mums and carers will leave them. And they'll start walking but they're not in full control of their eyesight or anything else. And they can see that there's something in front of them they're going to put their foot on. Fall over, trip over, kick over. And the little parents and mums will come by and they'll say, oh, just a minute. And they'll lift them up over the problem and put them down again and let them go on. Throw yourself down, says the devil to Jesus. Because the angels will lift you up in case you trip over even. Stub your foot against a stone. Now, look at this, dear friends. Here again, he's tempting him to be presumptuous and not to trust in his father. 
Verse 7, Jesus says, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Finally, the devil comes to him, takes him up onto a high mountain there. Forgive me, I think we're in verse, uh, we're in verse 8 now. Took him up onto an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now you've got to understand this. You're either in one kingdom or another. You are either in the kingdom of his dear son or you're in the kingdom of darkness. The scriptures tell us very clearly, 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are held firm by God. It's only the people of the world who continue in the grip of the evil one. 1 John 5, verse 19. You see, the devil had absolute right to come to Christ and say, all of these are mine. Here's the deal. Worship me and I'll give them to you. He wanted to be the puppet master. And this was the thing that really got Jesus' goat. It really annoyed him. He sent the devil packing over this one because that was the heart of the matter. Satan says, this is what I really want. Worship me. Put me first. We read further, don't we? Look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus was tempted to distrust, to presumption, to ambition, and to idolatry. Or we can put it another way, as the scripture says, the needs of the body, temptation of the eye, and the pride of life. And we have got to remember, dear friends, that we're not exempt from such temptations. And we've got to remember the best way to foil the enemy is by the sword of the Spirit. And we need to rejoice this morning. There is no temptation which is irresistible. God has promised to bruise Satan underneath our feet. There's no temptation or circumstance that we can say, actually, I didn't know what to do. It was just, I couldn't help myself. It was irresistible. That's rubbish. Number five of six. The king in his conquest is now ministered to by angels. Look at verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. I believe in the ministry of angels for today. It says in Hebrews, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will be the heirs of salvation? Doesn't it say, don't forget to entertain strangers unawares because some of you have entertained angels without knowing it. I believe in the ministry of angels towards the saints of God. Here's our Savior, having won his spurs, having routed and thrown out the devil here, having been knighted in the field, ministered to by angels. I want to tell you, we can expect this as well. Finally, the king begins his ministry on a note of victory. He's now going to go back to Galilee to begin that section known as his Galilean ministry. And when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. What's my conclusion, dear friends, this morning? 
as we wind up, my conclusion is this. The commission of Jesus, the King of Kings, was the Father's sanction for an all-out assault on the Prince of Darkness. That's what the baptism of Christ was about. Go get him, says the Father. And he did. My conclusion is this. We are all his soldiers, each one in the battle, taken up with his commission of preaching the good news to every creature that might be saved. And I can say that each one of us. Jan Struthers, who wrote those, those two hymns there, she was also a writer for, for the Times. And she had a column just before the start of the Second World War called, I think it was Mrs. Miniver. Mrs. Miniver. And she was a normal housewife that wrote about things that were going on in the family in this column in the Times. And at the outset of the war, Mrs. Miniver had a column which she was writing about all the preparations of what was going to go on. A famous film was made by it. Uh, from this column called Mrs. Menember, a black and white movie. You can get it. It's excellent. Here's Jan Struthers, this pen name of this agnostic that's writing hymns for a bishop, bishop that's got this <laughs> Times column that gets turned into a film in 1942. This film about a typical British family called Mrs. Menever so influences President Roosevelt that he has a portion of it broadcast to every American in the world. He has millions of a one particular speech by a vicar called the Wilcoxon speech put on pamphlets and dropped over occupied territory in Europe. That's how influential it was. This final, it's called the Wilcoxon speech of Mrs. Miniver. It rallied America into the war. A housewife writer, Mrs. Miniver. Winston Churchill said she did more to get the Americans into the war than anybody else through this film and writing. The scene is of a vicar in a bombed out church somewhere in England having to speak to his flock saying, why is it that this beautiful woman has died? Why is it that this young man has been killed? Why have we lost this little boy? Why are we here in this ramshackle place? And his conclusion is this, because we are all soldiers. Every one of us. Can you imagine a speech like that rallied the United States of America? I wish I had that power this morning. But I need to tell you, dear sister, and Jane, and everybody here. You are soldiers of Jesus Christ. I'm going to frighten you now. Are you ready for this? It's all down to you. Don't wait for reinforcements. This is it. We are soldiers. We are in the battle. We are commanded to stand and fight. We are to follow our Lord and rout the devil. We are too. Assail the very gates of hell and they will not resist us. Us. Me and you. It's a topsy-turvy world, the kingdom of God, isn't it? It's us. Christ in us. The hope of glory. Would you bow your heads break every chain The conquering lion I pray every chain Give him
Yeah. 